It is good to be in the house of the Lord, singing his praises together with his saints, isn't it? It's a good morning. Well, today we come to the end of our series on questioning God in the Psalms. As Pastor Jeff mentioned last week, we thought this was going to be a timely series. There's so much that is going on in the world, so many questions we have about what is happening in the world, so many questions being asked of who God is and what this thing called Christianity is. But we also know that this has been, for us as a staff and as a Chapel Street family, a great time to hear from God as we question Him. We've tackled great questions and we've dealt with difficult issues like depression and fear. And today, I think it's fitting that, that we end with the most fundamental and really the most crucial questions that any human being can ask at all, time, at all times. Who is this God of the Bible and what does he want from us? And in Psalm 24, we're going to see God answer both of these questions. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 24. And while you're turning there, I'd like to, um, to talk about this psalm before we dive into it. It's a psalm of David. That means it was written by the king of Israel. It was written about the king of the universe. And it speaks to the kingly line that we know will uh, accumulate in Jesus. We know much discussion has gone into the occasion of this psalm. When was this psalm written and what was it for? Well, most scholars agree that it was sung as a responsive call to, to worship at the city gates and at the temple gates when David brought the Ark of the Covenant, that, that, that um, thing that was made to hold the presence of God, when he brought the covenant, Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Some others say it was sung as a responsive call to the city gates when a king returned to battle to the city gates. But whatever its exact use, we know that it's about welcoming and celebrating the very presence of God coming in to the midst of his people. It's a psalm of worship. It's a song of solemn celebration. We also need to understand that Psalm 24 is messianic, that is, it points specifically to Jesus. All of church history, this, song, this psalm has been taught as a messianic psalm, starting at the very beginning with Justin Martyr, to Augustine, to Calvin, to even George Frederick Handel, who in his, his monumental work, The Messiah, quotes the verses 7 and 10. Our church fathers all agree. Psalm 24 is about Jesus. And what is the central question of this psalm? Well, we find it in verses 8 and 10. And you've heard it mentioned already this morning. Who is this king of glory? Another way of saying that is who is this God of the Bible that God's people worship and interact with? It's a central question of the psalm. And as I've mentioned, it really is a central question to all of our lives. You see, getting God right is the most important thing you and I can do as human beings. A.W. Tozer in The Knowledge of the Holy says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or based as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church, that's us, is always God 
himself. And the most portentous fact that any man about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. As much as we are able, you and I, we need to get God right. It is of the utmost importance. Who is this king of glory? What is he asking of us? And in Psalm 24, we're going to see him answer these questions in three specific movements. First, God reveals himself as the creator king in movement one. Look at verses one and two. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. There's two main takeaways here, aren't there? First of all, he made it all. He created everything. He made it out of nothing. He made all things good and beautiful. And notice that he made them upon the seas and the rivers. That's a clear connection to Genesis 1-9. What does that mean? It means that he took that which was restless and formless and chaotic, and he gave it form. God brought order to chaos. He made, a, he made everything, and he gave order to everything. But what else do we see? It's all his. Everything is his. Look at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's, and all the fullness thereof. It's all his. Every created thing, it's all his, including us. We are his. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 103. What does he say? Know that the Lord, he is good. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks to the very same theme in Acts 17 when he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. For one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Notice this. For in him we live and move and have our being. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. For in him we live and move and have our being. It's all made by him. It's all sustained by him. He is the creator. He is our context. He is the source of meaning in our lives. And remember, this is a messianic psalm, so this really points to Jesus. What did the Apostle John say about Jesus in John 1, in verses 1 through 3? In the beginning was the Word, and we know that that is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. Now notice, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And Paul again takes this further when he describes the creator king like this in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And 
for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You're getting the point? I hope you're getting the point. Jesus has made it all. It's all his. We are his. Jesus made everything. He holds everything together. It's for him. The inventor owns the patent. The artist owns the art. The musician owns the melody. And Jesus owns everything. Jesus is the king of glory, and he is our creator king. Now, we can hear this, and we can think those are just words. But at the end of the day, sometimes words fail to capture the, the scale of this. So, you know, when we, when we talk about large numbers or when we think about the size of the universe, our minds sort of lose the ability to understand. Well, I thought I'd take us through a little exercise today to help us remember and realize the creative, sustaining power of Jesus right now. So picture this for a second. Right now, the Lord Jesus Christ is keeping the sun burning at 9,941 degrees Fahrenheit right now. He's keeping this earth rotating around the sun, orbiting the sun at exactly 93 million miles. And by doing this, it allows the earth's atmosphere to average 55 degrees Fahrenheit. And it allows the average atmospheric uh, oxygen level to be 21%. Jesus is doing all of that. He's also keeping your heart beating right now, and my heart beating right now, which allows blood to th- flow to our lungs. And he allows it to be, uh, this oxygen that comes into our lungs to be absorbed through the 480 million alveoli, the little air sacs in our lungs that he created. And this is able to happen because of the specific temperature and specific oxygen saturation of the atmosphere. This oxygen is then captured by your 25 trillion red blood cells, which measure six micrometers in size. And they transport, and they are transporting oxygen to every cell in your body right now. Which allows you this very moment to be hearing what I'm saying, which allowed you to sing allowed you to praise a moment ago which will allow you to get up out of your seats and that's just one function in one body and he's doing that right now in 7.9 million people across the world jesus is the creator king jesus owns it all He made you and he sustains you. What are some things that we should do with this? How should we respond to Jesus being creative king? First of all, we need to remember he is God and we need to remember we are not. We need to give up the illusion that we control our lives. Has anything um, that this season of COVID taught us or reminded us that, that God is in control and we are not? We are not in control. We are not God. We need to cease from striving. We need to cease from worrying. We need to let God be God. But also know, when God has created a king and worshiping him, that you are not an accident. Let me say that again. You are not an accident. You were made by God for God. You have infinite value and worth and purpose, and you are designed for God to do his good purposes. And I don't know what you need to hear today. 
Maybe you need to hear that you need to stop resisting God's creative control. Let go. Trust God to lead your life. Or maybe you need to start rejoicing in in his creative design. He's made you for a purpose. And you need to get going. And you need to serve him. God owns the patent and the copyright to your life. He is the designer. Trust him. His designs are always good. We know that does not mean easy. Celebrate his goodness in your design. Use all that you are to serve him. That is worship. So this king of glory is Jesus, the creating king. But he created us for so much more than mere physical existence, didn't he? Even though that's an incredible miracle in himself, he created you and I to be in right relationship with him and with others. That's at the heart of God making man in his own image. And even though we marred that relationship through the fall, and we continue to mar that today, don't we? Through our own personal sin, God moves towards us and puts, us, puts into place a way back to him. Which leads to movement two. Who is this king of glory? He is the redeeming king. Now this, this movement begins with a question for us. We'll see that in verses three through six. It's a question that looks like it's addressed to us, his creatures, his possessions. But really this question is meant to look through us and to see back to God. It's ultimately speaking about God and his redeeming work for us. Look at verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from God and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now, at first glance, this seems like a try harder or be good religious formula, doesn't it? If you want to be with God, just be good. Have clean hands and a pure heart. Don't worship any idols and don't tell lies, and you'll receive blessing and salvation from God. Just try and be good, or at least be better than the other guy. Just try harder and be better than the worst, and you're in. But that's not what the Bible says, right? Consider what Isaiah says about the people of Israel in Isaiah 59. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Paul moves past Israel, and he speaks of the whole world when he puts it this way in Romans 3.23. Most of you know it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Clearly, we have a problem here. That problem is laid out in verse 3. Who can ascend the hill of God? The hill of the Lord is synonymous for his holy place. We know that's where God's presence is. So the question is, who can come into the presence of the Lord? And the question continues, who shall stand in his holy place? Who can exist in his holy presence? So who can come into his holy presence? And who can exist in his holy presence? Here's the problem. God is holy, and we are not. We cannot enter into his presence or exist before him. Think about Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, he caught a vision of the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God, right? And what did he say when he he had this full vision? He said, I am undone. He was not saying, oh, I'm a little bummed, I'm a little upset. He was saying, I'm falling apart at the seams. I cannot exist 
in the presence of God. That which is created and imperfect cannot approach or exist in the presence of uncreated perfection. Let me say that again. That which is created and imperfect cannot approach or exist in the presence of uncreated perfection. We know how we got here. We, we know that in the fall in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve deliberately chose to act against God's good purposes and sin entered the world. And that sin was accompanied by separation and shame and guilt and hiding and ultimately death. But thank God that's not the end of the story. Thank God. No, what does God do? Immediately he starts his rescue plan. And by nine chapters, uh, nine chapters in at Genesis 12, he's entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham and his descendants. Now, this covenant is an agreement between God and his people, the Israelites, in which God promised to be with them and protect them if they kept his law and they were faithful to him. So it's within this covenant understanding that, that David wrote Psalm 24. So look again at verse 4. Who can come before God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn falsely. David is saying that we need to be holy to be before God. We need clean hands. Our actions need to be free from wrongdoing. We need a pure heart. Our inner life needs to be focused on God and his goodness. We uh, need to have not lifted up our soul to false, falsehood. We need to have singularity of devotion to God over idols. And we uh, has not sworn deceitfully. We need to be those who do not use our words for deception or manipulation. If I take a quick and, and honest look at my own life, um, that sounds pretty daunting on my own, if not impossible, Right? We have to understand that this covenant was a way back to God in his holy presence. But hear this, it wasn't in the keeping of the law that provided a way back for God. It was their obedient faith that God would provide a way back um, to him as they did what they were asked by God. God does the redeeming and saving. We never can. God makes us worthy of his presence. And that's exactly what God does. Look at verse 5. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. In the Old Testament, God justifies and saves. Even in the Old Testament. And look at verse 6. We notice the scope of his blessing. We talk about those who's the generation who seeks him. The, the scope of God's blessing and redemption and salvation. And this, is, this generation is the people who have received the blessing of God's righteousness. Who are living in his presence according to his pur purposes are part of God's people, extending back um, to God's covenant with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and believing in faith forward to Jesus and even us today. By God's grace, we are all part of this generation by faith. But going back to the question in verse 3, no one has clean hands and a pure heart on their own, right? Well, everyone except for the one to whom the psalm points to. The rest of the Bible teaches us ultimately that redemption comes from one person, Jesus Christ. He is the King of glory, the redeeming King. Jesus is the only one who could ascend the hill. Jesus is the only one who could provide a way for us to ascend the hill and enter into the presence of the Holy God. The, the writer of Hebrews captures this beautifully and he, about the redeeming work of Jesus in Hebrews 10 when he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, by the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have entered 
and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near into a true heart with a true heart of, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus is the one who gives us clean hands. Jesus is the one who gives us pure hearts. This is how David's hands were cleaned. This is how David's heart was purified, believing in faith that Jesus would come and do this. Jesus is the way through which we ascend the hill and stand before God. Jesus is the one who gives us legitimacy before God. Um, I don't know if everybody here knows this, but part of my story is that I was adopted. Uh, I was adopted four days after I was born, uh, and I came into the home of Sam and Lois Bechtel. They're my parents. They earned the title. They had to put up with me. Around my first uh, birthday, my mom tells the story that they brought me before a judge. And in this process, in the state of New Jersey, he declared me legally legitimate. Legally legitimate. Now, I could have lived my whole life with my parents having the full rights and privileges of their son. But it was that moment legally that, that gave me sonship and legitimized it before the state. And on an even greater scale, as a young boy, when I gave my life to Jesus, I was declared righteous by the King of glory. I was given clean hands, I was given a pure heart, and I am now allowed to send the hill of the Lord and stand in his presence all by the grace of God. That has nothing to do with me. That's by the grace of God. All through the finished work of Jesus. Jesus declares us legitimate. Who is this king of glory? He's the redeeming king. Now why should that matter to you? It's this old, old story that those of us who have been in church have heard over and over and over again, right? Well, remember, God created you. He owns the patent on you, and he has good purposes for you. But God also bought you back from the curse of sin and death. Through Jesus, you have been made, and you have been bought back. Now, if you don't know Jesus today, just understand, you don't need to clean yourself up to come to him. You can come to him right now. He will give you a new heart and a new life. He will give you legitimacy before him and allow you access to God the Father. And if you know Jesus, and I say this to myself as much as I say it to you, when you're still trying to be good enough, you get caught in that trap, we still live as orphans. When we still try to be good enough, when we're still trying to earn the love and acceptance of our Father, when we are trying to make a way back to God, remember, he stepped in, has already made a way back for us. Live in that reality. Revel in that reality. This is your king of glory. Jesus is the creating king. Praise him. Jesus is the redeeming king. Thank him. But there's still more to this king of glory. We see this in the final movement, in movement three, in verses seven and ten. Look at what it says. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. 
Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Notice the names being ascribed to this King of glory. He is the Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle, and the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts occurs 261 times in the Old Testament. The word Lord refers to Yahweh, and we've, it means his self-existent, all-creating, redemptive self. We've talked about that already. He's created everything, and he's redeemed everything. Host refers to the armies of heaven, to the angelic armies of heaven. That's another way of saying the Lord of hosts is saying the God of the armies of heaven. He controls the army of heaven. He is strong and mighty in battle. He conquers all. He is the conquering king. Who is this king of glory? He is the conquering king. He not only controls the stars of the universe, he controls the very armies of heaven. The king of glory who commands the armies of heaven and who will eventually defeat all his enemies in the world is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of hosts. And when Jesus came to earth the first time, he came to conquer death and Satan and provide a way back, provide redemption to God for all of mankind. But make no mistake, the king of glory who commands the armies of heaven will eventually defeat all his enemies in this world. His name is Jesus. He is the Lord of hosts. In Philippians 2, Paul makes it clear that someday, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. That is a reality. Every created being will bow their knee to, to, to Jesus, and they will confess that he is Lord. That is coming. The Lord of hosts will return in power. He's going to conquer his enemies, and it will be it's the way it's supposed to be. Just to get a picture of who this conquering king is and what he's going to accomplish by the end of time, look at what John says in Revelation 19. This is Jesus coming to restore righteousness. Then I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Um, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This same Jesus who came in a manger to Bethlehem will one day return and bring justice and righteousness. He will conquer and rule. This is Jesus today, this King of Glory, the conquering team, King. This is Jesus, the conquering, creating, redeeming King of Glory. We need to get him right. Our understanding of the, the person work of this person, Jesus, is the most important thing about me and you. It's the most important question we can ask ourselves. Of any questions there are, who is this king of glory? Because when we get that answer right, when we understand that he's made everything, that he's redeemed us back to himself, that he's in complete control, and he is conquering and will conquer all, 
then we're able to do what he wants us to do. And what does he want from us? Well, the answer is found back in verses 7 and 10. You know, this entire psalm is descriptive, right? It's been describing a lot of things. Except for there's one call in this psalm, one call that's repeated in verses 7 through 10. Do you see it? Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. Why? So that the king of glory may come in. In the immediate context, we understand that these verses... Um, to be a call that King David was making to actually to the, to the city gates, the actual city gates, when he brought the Ark of the Covenant again, which is uh, where God's presence was, into the midst of his people. But there's a poetic idea here that extends to all of God's people. It's a call for us to pick up our heads and to take our eyes off our daily struggles and to focus them on the King of glory, the one who made us and bought us back and conquers and rules all. But this is more than just a shift in perspective of lifting up our eyes. It's also a shift in posture. We humble ourselves and let the creating, redeeming king into our lives and let him lovingly conquer us. It's an invitation to allow God to enter fully into every aspect of our lives. To empower us, to encourage us, to guide us and strengthen us. He wants to lovingly take over your life. Jesus is saying to you and to me, open your eyes and open your lives. Let me in to rescue you and rule your life. Think about it. We all try to find something to rescue and rule us, don't we? We all try and find something. We, we find something to worship. worship. We're made to be conquered. We're made to worship and serve. And there's all sorts of different poisons to pick out there in the world, isn't there? Except for one. His name is Jesus. He is the only one who can give our, we can give our lives to and not end up in dismay or death, ultimately. So Psalm 24 is a resume for King Jesus, the King of glory, the only one worth giving your life over to. Yes, he wants it all. But he's not simply a benevolent dictator. Remember, he knows you better than anyone. He made you. He loves you more than anyone. He redeemed you at great cost. And he is more powerful than anyone or anything. He's got you. The king of glory has made you. He's saved you. And he's got you. And he wants to enter in and give you life, life abundantly now and life everlasting, forever and ever. Jesus, the King of glory, is saying to me and he's saying to you today, let me in. This is the call of the King of glory in Psalm 24. And this is the call that Jesus gives to his church. Remember in Revelation 3.20, but what uh, Jesus is doing to the church of Laodicea, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And we will be more than conquerors, it goes on to say. That's to the church. That's to you and me. That's to you and I who are in Christ, who are able to enter into the, um, enter into the presence of God. He is knocking mercifully right now. One day he's going to knock all the doors down, but he's knocking mercifully. He wants 
you to let him in. He wants me to let him in, joyfully and willfully, today. And whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades, or you're just opening your life to him for the first time, hear his call. Heed it. Lift up your heads and open your gates. Give yourself over to the one who knows better than you know yourself. Give yourself over to the one who loves you more than you love yourself and give your one over to the one who's able to accomplish more than you could ever ask or imagine. Who is this king of glory? It's Jesus. He is the king of glory. Open the gates. Lift up your heads. Let him in today. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for this Psalm of David. Lord, we thank you that um, you are the King of glory. Thank you that all you've done. Forgive us for forgetting all that you've done for us. Forgive us for seeking to uh, control our own lives. For, uh, forgive us for trying to save ourselves. Forgive us for trying to um, conquer the world ourselves. Lord, we know that is only from you. So, Lord, give us the power to open up our hearts and our minds to you. And, Lord, um, use us for your purposes and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.